Hi, and welcome to the Insurance versus History podcast. In this podcast, we examine how insurance has changed history and sometimes how it failed to change history even when it really, really tried. Maybe you found this podcast because you're interested in history or insurance, or you just wonder how in the world someone would even be interested in this. But really, the fact of the matter is that insurance allows people and organizations to take risks that they wouldn't normally take, to decide to avoid taking risks that are too costly or too risky to insure, and frankly, changes the way we live our lives. Insurance matters, and sometimes it creates results you might not expect. I'm Meredith, your host for the Insurance versus History podcast. I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years, I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators, yes, Ghostbusters, to the world's top 500 companies. And I can tell you from personal experience, the decisions insurance companies make change history. In each episode, we'll tackle a topic and try to understand how insurance made a difference, or not. If you aren't an insurance professional, don't worry. I promise not to overcomplicate things, but I will introduce a few insurance terms and explain them every episode. Today's episode springs from a recent rewatch of the Martin Scorsese movie Gangs of New York, and a question I had after the movie ended. Did insurance, of all things, actually encourage gang activity during the 19th century? And all the things I found out when I started asking these questions. We'll also talk about two insurance terms, hostile fire and moral hazard. That's moral with an A-L, not morale with an L-E. Those terms are relevant and I think kind of fun. Yeah, I know, maybe my idea of fun. So join me as we head back in time to 19th century New York and 19th century fire insurance. Oh, Gangs of New York. If you've seen it, you probably remember Daniel Day-Lewis as Bill the Butcher, or maybe DiCaprio's sometimes, sometimes not Irish accent, or Cameron Diaz's really unfortunate red hair. But it's worth going back a little to the development of this movie because it does have some bearing on our discussion today. Scorsese had read a book called The Gangs of New York, An Informal History of the Underworld, written by Herbert Asbury which was originally published in 1928. This book's a fun read. It's based primarily on stories that were told to Asbury by New Yorkers, as well as research Asbury had done on newspaper accounts of the time. Scorsese tried for 20 years to make a movie based on this book. When he finally succeeded, he took a lot of historical liberties. For example, they moved the timeline up significantly in order to make the movie's final sequences more exciting, revive some dead people from the grave, and ignored pretty much all historical research that refuted the accuracy of the book he was basing the movie on. But Daniel Day-Lewis sure was good, right? Actually, I love a lot of this movie. I think it's a little longer than it needed to be, but the movie itself is a lot of fun. One of my favorite parts of the movie is about a third of the way in when gang members, acting as firefighters, show up at a house fire and proceed to get into a brawl. And that was exactly where my insurance brain kicked in. 
And then later on during the climax of the movie, there are the draft riots. Again, we see a lot of firemen participating in the rioting and even setting fires. Watching this movie, it's pretty clear that the firefighters are also gang members. In the case of the first firefighters on the scene, they are following Boss Tweed as DiCaprio narrates that there were 37 amateur fire brigades and they all fought each other. One of the firefighters grabs a wooden barrel and puts it over the fire hydrant and sits on it so nobody else can get to it. Tweed says to hurry up before the black joke gets here, just as another fire brigade, a.k.a. the black joke, arrives. They fight, then DiCaprio and his friend, who've shown up to watch the entertainment of the fire and the brawling, run into the burning home to loot. Outside, the fire brigade heads are talking, and one says something to the extent of, can I point out that this building is burning down to ashes while we fight? So they talk about maybe saving the building next door that's not yet on fire. So that's an example of a potential hostile fire. We'll come back to that later. But that building might soon be on fire, and so everybody goes in to loot that building. And then Bill the Butcher arrives with his fire brigade to help Boss Tweed. It's all very fun to watch, if a little depressing for the poor people who lived in those houses. And all three of those fire brigades were either New York gangs or pretty close to it. Boss Tweed's firefighters were the Amicus Fire Brigade. The Black Joke? Those were the Bowery Boys. Bill's firemen? Those were members of the Nativist Gang. Why were they fighting the fires, though? For fun? To prove their manliness? As a lark? As a cover to loot? So amazingly, until the Civil War, most firefighting organizations in the United States were either created and owned by insurance companies or were paid by insurance companies to protect that insurance company's insured properties and their insured properties only. And this latter idea of paying independent fire brigades to put out fires was a problem. It's interesting because this is very much a U.S. problem and not something the rest of the world followed. In fact, if you look at European countries, England is really credited, rightly or not, with formally tackling the issue of commercialized fire insurance and professional firefighting first in the European sphere. England certainly gets credit, and rightly so, for determining how these two things evolved in the United States. Hey guys, so I don't currently have sponsors for my podcast, but I thought it would be really fun to do some advertisements from the newspapers during this period in history. Enjoy. Why is my hair so amazing? Burgett's Cocoane. For the hair. What does it do? Curious dandruff, soothes all irritation of the scalp, makes the hair grow, and gives a beautiful luster. Why wouldn't you do it? Just 50 cents and a dollar per bottle. Obviously, there have always been fires, for as long as there have been structures that people used for shelter. Firefighting before the 19th century was primarily a community endeavor. Your neighbor's house was on fire, you grabbed your bucket. Sometimes even a bucket in your house that was designated just for fighting fires. And you helped. But as cities in England increased in size and density, this solution just didn't seem like the best way to go about fighting fires anymore. Specifically, Community participation became slightly more involved after 1666 in England due to the Great London Fire. 
Suddenly, people were thinking about how to fight fires that weren't just isolated at one home or a few homes or even a city block. These were fires on a grand scale and couldn't be managed by small groups of community-minded individuals. Your bucket didn't go very far when the entire city was on fire. So after the Great London Fire, a newly created insurance company in England called the Fire Office, and it's probably not a coincidence that the name they gave their private company sounded pretty governmental, the Fire Office created the world's first property insurance policies. This new product sold like gangbusters, By 1690, less than 30 years after the Great London Fire, one of every 10 houses in London was insured. This doesn't seem like a lot now, but back then that was tremendous. So after the Great London Fire, there was a lot more interest by businesses and well-off individuals to obtain fire insurance. And as a result, the number of insurance companies increased and those insurance companies looked around and debated how best to protect themselves from catastrophic loss from losing a whole home or a whole block of homes that they insured. That discussion evolved into the development of firefighting brigades owned by insurance companies. So, if you were a well-off Londoner and you wanted to purchase fire insurance to protect your home from loss due to fire, you would hie off to purchase fire insurance from one of the insurance companies. In return, you would receive a policy and something called a fire mark. It was a brass or metal plate to mount on the front of your home or business. These fire marks often had the logo of the insurance company, and they indicated your property was insured by that insurance company. It's kind of like advertising and a little bit more because in the case of a fire, the fire brigade owned by your insurance company would respond to the fire. Another fire brigade owned by another insurance company would not respond. So imagine you're a neighbor of one of these buildings and the insured property next door is on fire. Great. The insurance company's fire brigade would arrive to put out the fire. But what happens if that fire jumps from their home to your home? So this is what we call in the insurance industry a, quote, hostile fire, unquote. Simply defined, a hostile fire is a fire that becomes uncontrollable or breaks out from where it was intended to be. So now your house is on fire, too. But what if you aren't insured? Or what if you are insured, but just not with that insurance company? You might be out of luck. I think it's safe to say that this concept wasn't going to succeed in the long term, because it was definitely short-sighted. So, Ben Franklin, of all people, brings these ideas of a more formalized insurance product for fire, the idea of a fire mark, and the accompaningly owned fire brigades back to the States. He establishes a company in Philadelphia and hires firefighters. And amazingly, this company's still in business today. It's called the Philadelphia Contributorship, and they still insure homes on the East Coast. I'll drop the website in the show notes because they have a nice About Us section that even includes the original fire mark that the company used. Those fire marks can be very collectible, and in fact, the use of fire marks in the U.S. stuck around until about 1900. But... The English idea of insurance companies owning fire brigades just never really took off in the United States the way it did in London. Though some places in the U.S., like Cincinnati, jumped ahead in the evolution of firefighting and went straight to a municipal model where the city was paying and administering a professional firefighting force by 1849. But Cincinnati was definitely an outlier. Other cities would come to this idea much later, driven in part by insurance and insurance companies. 
In a place like New York, fire was obviously a major problem, especially in the 19th century as the density of the city exploded as immigrants from all over the world came to America, many of them stopping either temporarily or permanently in New York, and some of them created gangs. If you want to take a step back from the U.S. and European countries, well, Japan had a very complicated setup of required fire volunteerism for centuries, which, since all cities in Japan were made entirely of wood for many years, Japan was basically a bonfire in waiting, and cities burned all the time. So to have this in place makes total sense. In fact, Japan had such a culture of major fires that it almost became romantic. And there's a lot of stories about women committing arson due to their failed romantic entanglements. I'll drop some stuff in the show notes if you're interested. I also tried to find out how China handled firefighting, because they were certainly ahead of the European world in terms of organized policing. In fact, London's police force took a lot from China's existing police organization when it was created. But I couldn't find anything. So if anyone has any information on firefighting in China, let me know as well as anything on firefighting in any non-Western countries. I'd love to add it to the show notes. While other cities had gangs, and frankly, there are even references to gangs in places like Philadelphia as early as 1783, a lot of people think of New York when they think of the development of early gang activity in the United States. And then they also think of the Lower East Side in New York City and the tenements and specifically an area in New York they call the Five Points. This area is now part of Chinatown. It doesn't exist as the Five Points any longer. But at the time, it was a mix of several different immigrant groups. So originally, gangs were organized around territory. But around 1840 or so, the gangs developed mostly along ethnic or nationalistic lines. So you had Irish gangs like the Dead Rabbits and the Bowery Boys, and you had Italian gangs like the Five Points Gang. But you also had gangs of people who identified as, quote, Americans, unquote, like the nativists. Gangs were most powerful in the 1840s and 1850s, but by the time of the Civil War, they'd lost some luster. This is actually one of the major historical inaccuracies in Scorsese's movie. It takes place in the 1860s, when the gangs weren't nearly so important in New York. But back to the gangs. What's interesting to me here is the difference between Asbury's Gangs of New York book and the historical research that came after. Because if you just read his book and watched Scorsese's movie, you come out with a few assumptions. First, you assume that gangs were made up of lawless men and women basically committing criminal activity with the permission of the police as long as the appropriate bribes were paid. Second, you come away with the idea that the area around Five Points was completely licentious and lawless, just didn't have any value to the citizens of the rest of New York City. Third, when you watch Scorsese's movie, you also come away with the impression that the gangs were not only involved in rioting in the city, they often started the riots. So when you see the gangs fighting fires in Gangs of New York, the movie, you have to wonder why. Is it a way to obtain legitimate income for the gang? Is it a cover for additional illegal activities? Is it just a thing they do for fun? Although buying a fire engine, even one pulled by people or animals, isn't exactly cheap. Or did Scorsese just put that in because it was mentioned in Asbury's book and he thought it was really entertaining? This actually highlights one of the things about history and the study of history that's often overlooked when we're in school or even watching things on TV. 
to quote the musical Hamilton, who tells your story. And I would add, why do they tell it and what do they leave out? In the case of Asbury, his sources were the people of New York that he talked to in the late 1920s. And I'm guessing that he probably made a decision to leave out people in the five points who told stories that were really boring or even didn't fit with the narrative that he was starting to create. And let's face it, often individual people exaggerate or creatively edit when telling their stories. The newspapers Asbury used for his research definitely had a point of view about gangs, about immigration, and since the business of journalism in the U.S. was still in its infancy, there was definitely a lot of writing to increase circulation, if you get my drift. There were other historians later who would corroborate Asbury's accounts, but more recent research suggests that maybe they weren't quite accurate. So the fact of the matter is history's not static, because who tells the story does determine what stories get told. And everyone has an opinion. And you have to kind of keep that in mind. I mean, even I have a point of view. I think that as long as you come at it with an eye to understanding why the author decided what to include and exclude, you can come away with a better understanding of how all the parts fit together to make a more complete whole. And this is especially important when reading insurance history, since much of it is written by in-house historians at the insurance companies. One thousand cats wanted, must be strictly pure white, full-grown, and have painted in neat, two-inch block letters on either side the following. Roger and Roger Palmista and Astrologers, located on the boardwalk between New York and Tennessee Avenue. Thoroughly scientific delineations by palmistry or astrology. But anyway, back to gangs. More recent research on New York seems to suggest that while there was definitely illegal activity in Five Points and that gangs did participate in it, the reality of it was much less and that members of a gang were more likely to be shopkeepers or dock workers or even butchers. Okay, well, that part they got right. But people with full-time jobs who used the gang as a social club or even like a fraternal organization. So, sure, it is true that the term dead rabbit which was one of the gangs, also meant rowdy youth. But these groups might have been much closer to a Greek fraternity or the Shriners or the Masons than a hive of scum and villainy. So then, if you think of the gangs in this manner, then also being a volunteer fire brigade, paid for by insurance companies or not, makes a lot more sense. One Irish gang, the Bowery Boys, they had an identity that was founded almost entirely on being volunteer firefighters, You might remember them from the movie. They're the gang that shows up to fight Boss Tweed in Gangs of New York. Tweed says in the movie to hurry up before the Black Joke gets there. Black Joke wasn't the name of the gang. It was actually the name they had given the fire engine that was owned by the Bowery Boys. Five Points itself wasn't actually the lawless place that Asbury and other early authors made it out to be either. It was actually the main entertainment district of New York at the time. So if you wanted to go to the theater for an evening out in your best dress and your tuxedo, you would probably be heading to Five Points. There were certainly places you might not want to visit in your nicest clothing after seeing a theatrical, but it wasn't so dangerous everywhere that you couldn't walk around without being immediately assaulted. One thing that historians agree on, even in Asbury's time, is that the gangs were very political. 
In Scorsese's movie, you see Boss Tweed and the Tammany political machine sending gang members out to vote for his candidates, sometimes even several times. Illegal voting or not, having the gangs on your side was a very strong political force. And this is part of where they started to get in trouble as far as volunteer firefighting went. At this point, I do think it's important to pause, because what we've been talking about in terms of the development of firefighting is primarily white European men, and I think we should take a step back and try to see a fuller picture of how all of humanity fits into this. First, what about women or people of color? Well, they were definitely involved, though ignored, in much of the traditional narrative about firefighting and insurance. If you're interested in this topic, there is some information out there about black men and women, both freed and enslaved, being involved in early organized firefighting. Specifically, there are stories about an enslaved woman in New York, Molly Williams, who's considered to be both the first woman and the first black member of a fire brigade. Amazingly, it wasn't until the 1980s that women became official New York firefighters. Black men, both enslaved and free, also participated in firefighting, particularly in the southern states. And in California, Los Angeles had a black fire brigade. It wasn't easy for any of them, and in many cases, their attempts to start fire brigades or participate in existing brigades was quickly squashed. During the period where Asbury sets his book, Scorsese sort of sets his movie, and the 19th century New York gangs are active, something is happening in insurance. Actually, something is happening in the Western world as a whole, including the U.S., and it changes so many things about how the economies of these countries operate. It grows out of the Industrial Revolution and Victorian morality. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, insurance was disorganized. We'll get to this more in another episode, I'm sure, but as insurance companies became larger, they became more focused on the economics of loss— the financial consequences of loss to the insurance company, rather than the idea of providing safety. And this was a big change. Part of this definitely had to do with the financials of the insurance companies themselves. For example, after the Great Fire of 1835 in New York City, which involved 17 city blocks and caused approximately $20 million in property damage, 23 of the 26 locally-based insurance companies went completely bankrupt. Clearly, something had to change if insurance companies were going to stay successfully afloat. Whereas before, firefighting was in some ways a community affair, everyone was working together to protect the city and each other, now it became more about financially protecting one individual person, one individual building. Insurance companies were starting to become more objective as a result, to imply some sort of scientific rigor to their business. They were trying to understand and standardize risks instead of looking at every building individually and deciding how to insure it. Insurance companies had already addressed that a frame building, something made of wood, is more exposed to a fire loss than a building made of brick because the wood burns faster, but now they were getting more granular. How many stories was the building? And was a two-story building more prone to fire than a one-story building? What about the building next door? What was it made of? And would it make it more likely that the building you were insuring would also catch fire? How far apart were the buildings? How easy was it for fire to jump from one building to another? How wide was the street? 
Could you get a fire engine down the alley? Could fire jump from one building to a building across the street? Or did the street act as a kind of a fire break? Insurance companies were building city maps that showed as much data about the city's buildings, businesses, and exposures as they could find. Even the role of the insurance employee was changing. Originally, they were independent salesmen. You might call them a step or two or three up from a snake oil peddler. So if you could standardize and objectively assess a risk, a building, then couldn't insurance companies also do the same for their employees or even their customers? This Victorian ethos of a certain kind of acceptable employee and customer started to emerge. And not surprisingly, it was white, male, middle class, with a certain level of education and comportment, and a certain ethnic background. By 1866, the insurance industry had even established an industry-wide administrative association called the National Board of Fire Underwriters, which included 100 fire insurance companies. All of a sudden, you start to see a discussion of the moral client, M-O-R-A-L, as in a person conforming to some sort of standard of right conduct. So this is really interesting to me because in insurance, we have a related term called moral hazard, M-O-R-A-L, hazard. Moral is spelled the same. But this is very different than the moral client. Moral hazard is concerned with the hazardous behavior of someone you're insuring. Once someone has insurance, sometimes they will do things that they wouldn't have done otherwise. Are they taking risks that they would not have taken if they didn't have that insurance policy in hand? Those risks are considered a moral hazard. A moral client, on the other hand, to an insurance company was someone who fit their ideal idea of a man. And volunteer fire brigades, volunteer firefighters, didn't fit this mold at all. In fact, they were the exact opposite of this Victorian ideal man, this ideal middle-class worker. So while previously insurance companies had created their own fire brigades and worked with volunteer fire brigades and paid them for extinguishing fires, suddenly, in the 1850s, the relationship between insurance companies and fire brigades changed. Since insurance companies were no longer focused on public risk or safety and were just more focused on the individual financial risks of a fire at any insured location, they wanted firefighting to conform to their scientific and moral standards. And they wanted to reduce the cost of having to employ firefighters or pay fire brigades. How could they shift that cost to someone else and save the money they were spending? Add in the xenophobic anti-immigration trends of the 19th century, and all of a sudden, firefighting brigades and the men who fought fires were considered rowdy, boyish, uncontrolled. They fought, they drank, they had accents or spoke another language, and they were working class. What's amazing to me is they were actually considered less manly than an uptight, socially constrained insurance salesman. It's a little different than the way we think of them now. And if you rationally organized fire departments, ideally paid for by some other entity as opposed to the insurance companies, then you could, in theory, also reduce the number of firefighters, which would then reduce their influence as a voting block, which often 
firefighters didn't vote the way insurance companies or other groups would have liked. Sound familiar? Insurance companies lobbied local governments to consider a municipal model of firefighting, where the operation of fire brigades would be paid for by taxpayers and no longer the financial or operational responsibility of the insurance companies, to change the firefighter from a volunteer to a professional. Mind you, many firefighters now are called volunteers, but I don't think anyone would claim that what they do and how they do it is not a trained professional role. And because a lot of cities, and especially New York, relied on firefighters as a voting block, and because, of course, the establishment of municipal fire department would result in the need for additional tax income, cities resisted this on the whole for some time. However, specifically in New York, the draft riots in 1863 changed the minds of city leaders about fire protection. Wanted. Wife. I am an 18-year-old man, have a good set of teeth, and have nine sheep, a two-year-old bull, and two heifers. Contact Aristook County Post Office. If you remember Scorsese's movie, the climax takes place during the New York draft riots in 1863. Scorsese apparently made a decision to move the timeline of his story up from where it probably really belonged in the late 50s to 1863 and combine some events of the 1863 New York draft riots with an event called the Dead Rabbits Riot in 1857. The Dead Rabbits Riot was a dispute between the Dead Rabbits gang and the Bowery Boys and lasted two days, resulting in citywide destruction and eight deaths. The 1863 New York draft riots started out as a riot in response to Lincoln's establishment of the draft to conscript men to fight in the Civil War. As the draft itself started in July of 1863, riots of working-class people who could not afford to buy their way out of the draft, which was an option that wealthier Northerners took full advantage of, started all over the country, not just in New York. The riots started out as a reaction to the draft, but in New York, quickly turned into a race riot, terrorizing and murdering black New Yorkers. Herbert Asbury stated in his book Gangs of New York that the leader of one of the Five Points Brigades was actually drafted that day, and as a result, his fellow firefighters set fire to the draft office and then prevented other firefighters from putting out fires. But he was the only person I found that told that specific story. So, While historians differ on how involved fire brigades were in these riots, most historians studying this in the last 40 years or so seem to disagree with Asbury's statements. According to more recent research, unlike in the movie, fire brigades did not set fires. They were actively fighting them, and they weren't involved in the rioting in the way that the film tries to depict. In fact, the Five Points was actually one of the safer places to be during the riots, And actually, only one person from Five Points served in the Union forces due to being drafted. The indiscriminate murder of black people during the draft riots as shown in the movie, that absolutely happened. And there are a number of sources that do a much better job than I could of discussing it, which I will link in the show notes. As a result of this riot, the black population of Manhattan saw a dramatic decrease as blacks moved away. Five Points, for example, had approximately a 1,000 black residents at its peak, but by 1870, less than 100 
were still living there. In total, during the New York draft riots, approximately 120 people were killed, though depending on your source, this number might be higher. Many of those people were black. At least 2,000 people were injured, and at least 50 buildings were burned to the ground, including an orphanage for black children and two Protestant churches. After the draft riots, New York City government saw that having a more organized fire system would have saved a lot of property. As a result, they decided to take many of the existing volunteer brigades and organize them into a paid formal hierarchy of departments, with a chief overseeing all of them. Obviously, the insurance companies, who'd been pushing for this change for some time for financial reasons, also highly encouraged this. Other cities in the United States were either in the process of doing this or began it around the time of the Civil War. By the time we leave the 19th century, there are almost no independent fire brigades left. So, weighing insurance's role in this change, I think they played a bigger part than people have even acknowledged. Part of the reason it's not been fully recognized is I think that while historians studying the history of firefighting are starting to recognize the role of insurance, many older works do not. Which makes sense, because if you're looking at how firefighters evolved, you might not think to look at how a group of business people tried to affect change through the government. Maybe volunteer firefighters would have eventually organized more formally without the insurance industries pushing, but it might have taken longer and it might have looked different. So, did fire insurance companies inadvertently encourage gang activity in New York? Not in the way I see it. If you accept that the old way of looking at New York gangs might not be entirely factual. Special offer to quick buyers. Talking parrots, just $5. This week's special, 2,000 of our regular parrots, normally $10, now just $5. And we guarantee every bird will talk. Risk-free trial of 90 days. If your parrot doesn't talk, you can return the bird and get your money back. You run no risk. Written guarantee with every parrot's. Shipped anywhere in the North America region. The shipping for the cages and food for the journey is included. Quigley and Mullen, Philadelphia, the largest pet shop in the world. You could assume that the death of private firefighting in the U.S. took place in the 19th century and that there would be no reason for it to ever come back. But you would be wrong. And this time, the rise of private firefighting was driven by insurance. Part of this is the result of the way that the U.S. government has managed fire exposure on public lands, which is to say not very well. When you have a large wildfire, say in California, all of a sudden you're not looking at urban density fire issues where there are a lot of people packed together in a small space like a city. You're looking at fires threatening homes that may not be very close to each other. Starting during the Reagan administration, private firefighting companies began offering services mainly to homes and properties that were close to or backed up to publicly managed land. If you lived close to one of those public forests, you were further away from a city or municipal fire station than you might have wanted to be, and maybe your house was really, really expensive. Private firefighting might be a good option. Maybe you heard about Kim Kardashian and Kanye West hiring private firefighters to fight the fires, part of the Woolsey Fire, around their home in Southern California in 2018. Overall, the Woolsey wildfire caused $6 billion in property damage. But their home was spared as private firefighters dug fire breaks to protect their home. California wildfires and high-value insured homes 
are driving this new trend, but it's bigger than that. Insurance companies saw the increase in wildfires over the past 20 years and the inability of cities and municipalities to manage those fires, particularly in areas where there were a lot of higher-value homes, and decided to begin offering private firefighting to those people they were insuring who needed it and were willing to pay for it. Keeping in mind, though, that many of the benefits of having private firefighting on call went to the insurance companies, who could reduce the amount they paid out in loss. These days, insurers like AIG, Chubb, and even USAA, which is the insurance company that serves the U.S. Armed Forces, all offer firefighting services as part of their property insurance coverage. And just like the fire marks of England in the 17th century, they're fighting fires at the homes of their insureds, not the entire community. Only time will tell how that plays out, but history has a way of repeating itself. A huge thanks to my editor and voiceover actor, Zach Stinnett. Please hire him. And a special thanks to voiceover actor Jeff Kornbrut, who was nice enough to record the Parrot commercial. You should hire him, too. Their information, along with links and book suggestions about this topic, in case you're interested in learning more, can be found in my show notes at insuranceversushistory.libsyn.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something. 